you for the wonderful thank you for the wonderful time of worship. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, continue to just um, may our our ears thank you for the wonderful thank you for the wonderful. T- and Lord, our hearts be soft and teachable. And we desire to right now be encouraged and edified and instructed through your word. So we're grateful that we're here. Help us to just uh, remember that our cell phones need to be turned off or on silent and just be seated in our chairs. Um, because, Lord, this is a time that we get to hear from you. So thank you for all those who are, are listening in on live stream, perhaps away on vacation or uh, joining us from, from all over, who knows from where. And we're thankful for those out there in the coffee shop and um, for all who are here. Bless the youth as they're having their lesson as well. And so, Lord, we want to honor you and glorify you tonight as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And in Psalm 48, what we're going to see that its uh, emphasis and a focus is on Mount Zion. Now, when you read the scriptures, when you go through the Psalms, and particularly when you go through the book of Isaiah, you'll see Mount Zion that is mentioned. And oftentimes people wonder, what is Mount Zion? Well, if you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look towards Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives is just east of where the old city of Jerusalem was. You're looking at the Kidron Valley. That was the valley that Jesus uh, would cross over in this triumphal entry. And then he would probably, as he would head towards Mount Zion to the south, and he would come in that way in this triumphal entry. So Mount Zion initially, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David would capture Mount Zion that belonged to the Jebusites. Uh, When the children of Israel came in under Joshua, the leadership, that they did not completely, um, you know, conquer the land. There were still some pockets of the Canaanite tribes that were around that they did not drive out. It was an incomplete conquest. Matter of fact, when you look at the border of the land that God gave to Abraham and promised to Abraham, uh, they only conquered a small portion of it. But not all the Canaanite tribes were driven out. And so for 500 years after they came into the promised land, on that little mountain, Mount Zion, that ridge that would then go into, as there's a small valley, the Valley of Gehenna, and then there's Mount Moriah. But it was uh, occupied by the Jebusites. And David, you know the story, how he and his men in Second Samuel chapter 5 would take that hillside, Mount Zion. And that's where David would build his palace and in his, you know, fortified this city, the city of David, on Mount Zion. But later on, Mount Zion would also include where the temple would be built under Solomon's reign, and that was to the north. And it would also, in Scripture, as you look at Isaiah, for example, Isaiah chapter 1, when you look at the Psalms, uh, I think of Psalm 126, that Mount Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And so as we read this psalm that is written by the psalmist, the sons of Korah, again, we talked about who they are, uh, the sons of Korah, uh, they were... Uh, ones that were the Levites, and they were uh, involved in worship at the temple. But we do know that Zion here is speaking of the city of Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to see here. And we're going to see that the psalmist is thinking about when the Lord's going to come back and, uh, and rule and reign 
from Mount Zion when he does return. So let's begin to look at that. As great as the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. So as the psalmist begins to speak about Mount Zion, Jerusalem, it's interesting that Jerusalem is the most controversial city in all of the world. We probably all know that. In Jerusalem, we also know that in the last days, according to the scripture, is going to be a cup of trembling to all the nations. That's what the prophet Zechariah would write. And even today, we see that as being true, that Jerusalem is, is a, a city that is under uh, great controversy, and, and there's dispute of who does Jerusalem belong to? Does it belong to the Palestinians, to the Muslims? Does it belong to the Jews? And we know that God says that Jerusalem is my holy city. Jerusalem is God's chosen city, and when the children of Israel came into the promised land, he would, uh, the Lord, say to Moses when he was giving them the law that when you go into the promised land, don't just worship and sacrifice anywhere. Don't go to the high places that the Canaanites had set up in the wooden groves because those were places of temptation, as we discussed last week. But what you're to do is have a prescribed place where you're going to do the sacrifices where the tabernacle would be. And for many years, it was in Shiloh, kind of in the middle of the nation. But then, of course, it would be Jerusalem that would be chosen where the first temple was built. And that's where the people would come the Jews and they would celebrate the feast they would bring the sacrifices and they had temple worship and so Jerusalem called God's holy city God's chosen city it, it isn't Rome it isn't Washington DC it isn't Salt Lake City like the Mormons say but it is Jerusalem and Jerusalem there's a spiritual aspect you you and I need to understand that why Jerusalem is such a, a controversial place today because Jerusalem the scriptures say is the same center of the world. Matter of fact, if you want to be more specific, is that 35 acres called the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is today, is the holiest site for uh, the Muslims. It's the holiest site for the Jews, because on top of that mount is where Solomon's temple was and Herod's temple was. So that's where all the controversy is. And there's a spiritual dimension that we've talked about quite extensively concerning Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem, being a cup of trembling to all the nations, that at the end of time, at the end of the tribulation period, that final seven-year period that is more formally called Daniel's 70th week, that when the nations of the world gather just north of Jerusalem in the Valley of Jezreel, it's also called the Valley of Megiddo, that that's where, Zechariah tells us, that the city, half of it, will fall into captivity. And Joel chapter 2 tells us at that time that God's people, the Jews, will call for a fast and they'll call out to the Lord. And that's when that the Lord will come back and we're going to come back with him. And he will touch down on the Mount of Olives and he will judge the nations. He'll restore the nation of Israel in that day. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11 that all of Israel shall be saved. And then we're going to rule and reign with them for a thousand years and the Lord is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem so a very important city in God's eyes and notice here as the psalmist is writing in verse 2 beautiful in elevation when you read the scriptures you will always see that it's going up to Jerusalem 
And it's that way geographically because Jerusalem is in the mountains there on the southern edge of the uh, Samaritan Mountains and, and it's very hilly. And we also know that if you come from the west, you come from the Mediterranean Sea to about 2,500 feet. If you come from the east, you're coming from the Jordan Valley where the Dead Sea is. That's the lowest point on the face of the earth. So geographically, it's always coming up to Jerusalem, but more importantly, spiritually. So the psalmist is writing, uh, giving his attention here to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, the center of the world, uh, the city of God. And we continue in verse 4, for behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together they saw it and so they marveled they were troubled they hastened away fear took hold of them there and pain as the woman in birth pangs and when you break as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind so the psalmist here telling how God defeats the enemies of his city now Psalm 46 and 47 and 48 here as I mentioned last week is that trilogy of psalms that many scholars and interpreters believe was written during the time, perhaps, that Hezekiah was ruling in Judah. And we talked about Hezekiah's rule quite extensively last week as we went over Psalm 47. And as the mighty Assyrians were coming into uh, Judah to, to take over the fortified cities of Judah, we know that at first... Hezekiah folded. He, 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 he panicked. He got scared. And he took some of the gold and silver from the temple there in Jerusalem and, and from the king's palace. And he paid off the king of Assyria, Shanacharib, who was coming towards Jerusalem. And it was Hezekiah, a godly king, a very godly king, who had restored temple worship and sent the leaders throughout Judah to the cities to teach the people the word of God. He celebrated Passover. It was a great revival that was taking place. But he got afraid because the Assyrians were mighty. They would come in and they would torture you. They uh, would just devastate cities. They were especially cruel. So here is Hezekiah knowing that the mighty Assyrians are making their way up to Jerusalem. And he tries to pay off the king and, and said, I did wrong and turn away from me. Well, you know, as we discussed last week, that uh, King Shennacherib took the goods, he took the gold and the silver, but he kept coming. And I just think it's worth reminding all of us here tonight that you can't pay off the enemy. Don't try to appease the enemy because he'll take the goods and he's going to keep coming at you. And so as he surrounded the city, Shennacherib, with his mighty army, it was Hezekiah that gave himself to the Lord. And he, he received a letter from Shennacherib that was threatening him and, and, and uh, insulting him and the people of God and, and God himself. And we know that Hezekiah fasted and prayed in the leadership. And then an angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers all in one night. And you see here, some suggest that the psalmist is writing about that, the fear, the, the kings that came by. But I think that it also has end time implications because it is mentioned here, as we read, that um, there is an, a pain as of woman in birth pangs. We know that Jesus said that in the last days that the coming of the Lord is going to be like birth pangs, a woman who's going into labor. And we know that when a woman goes into that labor process, she uh, has those contractions, birth pangs, and, and those contractions, as it gets closer to the birth of that child, become more frequent and more intense. And I believe that's what we're seeing today. And Jesus wants us to be discerning in the days in which we're living in. 
Matter of fact, he rebuked the religious leaders of his day because he said that you guys can discern the weather, but you cannot discern the coming of the Son of Man. And he said to you and to me, to be the wise servant that's looking for the master's return, for I come at a time that you do not know. So we're to be discerning in the seasons, the times that we're in. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. But it is interesting that Jerusalem is playing a big major role in the world today, just as the Bible said that it would. And it's fascinating that as we read in verse 8, as we have heard and we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Shalah, that pause. God will establish it forever. And, and I like this verse, verse 8, because we have heard and we have seen. God is going to establish it. As you look at the prophetic scenario concerning Jerusalem, that it is going to be the center of controversy. And I want to remind us once again that if we want to be discerning in the days in which we're living in, we've got to watch what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in Israel today, because that's where the whole center of end-time prophecy is going to be focused on. It's the epicenter, if you would, of end-time events. And we know that Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, the city of the prophets, how I long to gather you to myself just as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not come. And as he was weeping for Jerusalem, knowing that as he spoke of the destruction that would come to Jerusalem, and that took place in 70 A.D. by the Romans, that Jesus said that you will see me no longer until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he said that right before he went to the cross. And we know that Jerusalem being the focal point, that again, Jesus is going to come and rule from Mount Zion, which is being spoken of here. And as you look at the prophetic scenario, it, it's, it's almost like a play. That's what it reminds me of. And, and the curtain's about ready to unfold, to be lifted. You know, whenever that uh, there's a play, they always get the actors in place. They get them marked. They get them set. And then the curtain comes up, and then the play begins. And that's what it reminds me today is I, I see the events that are taking place, not only in our own nation concerning the spiritual decline that we're in, but also as we see what's going on in the Middle East and concerning Israel. So we watch it, and we look at it, and, and, and we see the players being put in place and I'll tell you this I personally believe that the curtain's about ready to lift and we're going to see the birth pangs coming more and more we're already seeing them and and we shouldn't be surprised in the day in which we're living in you see Paul said it would be perilous times he told us that there are going to be those who are going to be walking away from the faith and giving their ears over uh, having itchy ears to heap up teachers after themselves that are going to be given over to fables and myths uh, there's going to be a falling away. And we see that, that in the church today, the church is becoming weak because of the church. And I mean the church at large. And I'm not saying every church, but I'm saying that we're seeing at an alarming rate, not only in our own nation, but uh, all around the world, that we see that the church is getting further away from the word of God. Where the church is strong is where there's persecution. And we see that case, of course, in the early church when they were persecuted, that they were stronger and they grew. But 
but we see that there's a falling away of the truth and a lot of voices out there. And that's why I always encourage you that you be a student of the word, especially in the day in which we're living in. And if you're not a student of the word of God, you're going to get deceived. It's not if you get deceived, you will get deceived. Because there's a lot of voices out there and deception. And Satan himself is like an angel of light. He's a master deceiver. And he will come along and he will deceive as he is even today doing that. So here is the prophetic scenario that's being set up. And I, I, I think about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and how, you know, I read the news today, how, of course, we've read in the news how uh, the United States and the six nations uh, are, you know, celebrating and and saying that we've reached a historic agreement with Iran, and yet you hear Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, saying that it's a historic mistake, that the world is more of a dangerous place today. And we can talk about it. We're not going to talk about it tonight. We don't have time to go into it. But we see that Iran and, and Russia and, and those Islamic nations are going to come together and they're going to invade Israel. We know that that has not come to pass. As Ezekiel says, it will happen in the latter days. That the Lord says, I'll put a hook in their mouths and I'll bring them into the land of Israel. They're going to come after the spoils, the booty. We don't know what the spoils and the booty is about uh, that they're coming after. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about when we get to Psalm 83. All right? So put that in your note. We'll get to it next week. All right? Psalm 83. <laughs> Maybe next year. I don't know. But we're going to get to it, and it's a very fascinating psalm written by Asaph, and we're going to look at it very carefully. But it's interesting, too, that not only those Islamic nations talking about Turkey and Iran and Russia, and you can see that confederation of nations, Sudan and Libya, that they're making treaties, and they're coming together, and they're aligning together, and they're threatening Israel. And it's very fascinating You see that the players are going to be put in place, and they are being put in place. But this isn't a play. This is reality. And just as we see here, the psalmist writes that God will establish it. I'll tell you something else that's fascinating, that we see that there's a coalition of nations in Ezekiel 38 that is mentioned, the Dan, which is Saudi Arabia, and, and the, the young lines of Tarshish. What fascinates me, and we've talked about this before, especially in our prophecy update uh, on New Year's Eve, that America really isn't mentioned in the last days. We don't know why. There's, there's no real definite mention of y the United States, and that puzzles me and a lot of those who study end-time prophecy because, you know, what does it mean? We don't know for sure. But there may be one vague reference to the United States there in Ezekiel 38, uh, the young lines of Tarshish. It may be a reference to Britain and young lines being the United States and, and along with Saudi Arabia that are protesting this invasion by this huge army that's going to come into Israel to destroy Israel. And it's very fascinating, I was reading today, that the alliance coming against you know, ISIS in the Middle East and, 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 and coming on behalf of Israel, Saudi Arabia. And the command, military command there um, in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Britain, and United States. Those alliances coming together. And Israel and Saudi Arabia 
are on the same page when it comes to fighting ISIS and when it comes to Iran. And why would Saudi Arabia, we used to read that and think, why would Saudi Arabia, a known and swear you know, enemy of Israel, would come on the defense of Israel if they were in trouble? And so the, the players are coming and it's being put in place. And so we have seen and we have heard and we're seeing the pieces of the puzzle come together. So we need to be wise and discerning in the days in which we're living in. So here we see the, the, the psalmist writing about the Lord is going to return. And he's going to establish it. And verse 9, And we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Because we have seen and heard, we now praise him, rejoice in God's city. We rejoice because of his loving kindness concerning your righteousness. We are glad because of your judgments. We certainly praise him because Jesus took the judgment for you and for me on Calvary's cross, didn't he? And every day we have a reason to rejoice and to be thankful, Christian. And I just want to remind you that because I'm sure that there's some of you here that you're going through a rough season. That you're going through difficulties or you're going through, you know, some losses or you're going through hard times and it might be at work or maybe it's with your family or in other areas financially, maybe health-wise. And I just want to remind you and I that we have reason to rejoice because Jesus took the judgment for you and for me who are believers on that cross. And that we can rejoice, that I do, that someday the Lord is going to come back. And when he establishes his kingdom and we're going to rule and reign with him, that Isaiah says that's when righteousness is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea and he's going to judge sin. And I can't wait for that day. No more wickedness and darkness and evil and, and all that that we see today. So we can be glad because of your judgments, Lord. And then in verse 12 to the end of the psalm, walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers and mark well her bulwarks and consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even to death. So uh, it's believed that the sons of Korah would walk around the city and look at the wall and the towers that guarded the city. But remember this, that it is God who's our protector. He's our guide, and he's our future. And I can't wait till we're all in Jerusalem together at Mount Zion because the end of the book of Zechariah says that in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ that we're going to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and we'll all be together. You know, we like to take trips to Israel. Matter of fact, I'm praying about when our next trip is going to be and kind of thinking about it and Lord, when would be a good time? And not all of us can go on those trips, but eventually... We're all going to get there, all right? And we're going to be rejoicing together and celebrating together. Psalm 49, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. Uh, I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. So the psalmist is saying, pay attention, listen up. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you think you're important or you think I'm a nobody, 
whether you have prestige or no prestige. Listen up, pay attention, is what the psalmist is saying here. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that we know that as Jesus wrote those letters to, to each one of those churches, he would say to each one, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I pray that you and I, that every time that we open the Word of God in our own devotions, and we come here on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings, and men's studies and ladies' studies will be starting next month, and, and all kinds of opportunity to continue to grow in God's Word, that we would have our ears spiritually open to what the Lord wants to say to us, that we would pay attention. This is not a time to go to sleep spiritually. That we need to be awake and paying attention and learning of the Lord and the things of the Lord. And the psalmist goes on to write that, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surround me? I think that's a good word for us today, isn't it? Because I think there's a lot of Christians. I'm getting emails and calls, you know, uh, when I do Calvary Live. What is it that we do today? in light of the Supreme Court decision and, and the trend that we see in our nation. And, and there's almost like there's anxiousness and almost a fear. We don't need to be afraid because we have the Lord. And he has given us victory. And he's going to come and rule and reign. And here the psalmist writes, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surround me? Why? Well, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can buy uh, any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him for the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit you see as we look at this we're being told an incredible truth that we just saw on Sunday in Ephesians chapter 2 that all the wealth in the world cannot buy us eternal life that is a gift to us and as Peter writes in his epistle, that we have been re redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, those two short verses, that we are saved by grace through faith. It, it is not of ourselves. It, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And those two short verses very clearly and plainly tells you and I that we are saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God. That's what grace means. And we are saved by the source through faith as we come to faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not by works. We can't buy our salvation. We can't work for our salvation. We can't merit our salvation. It is the gift of God as we come in faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And how he's risen from the grave and is alive. And that he has provided forgiveness of sin. You see, there are many that perhaps you even know that think that if they just are a good enough person, that they're going to make it to heaven. And that is the great lie of the enemy and of the world. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I get questions all the time by Christians that say, well... Do I have to be baptized? Do I have to, you know, observe the Sabbath? Do I have to do this certain act in order to be saved? No. Now, I'm not saying don't be baptized. We had a baptism on Sunday. We had a wonderful time at the pool over there at Centennial Pool. A wonderful time for those who came out into the water. It is an important uh, thing that a Christian comes out to the waters, but he doesn't come out or she come out to, to be saved. They come out declaring that they are saved. Um, identifying with Christ. And when anybody comes along and says that you are not saved unless you do this, 
you come to this church or that you are baptized or you observe the Sabbath, then they are telling you a wrong gospel. There's only one gospel, and that is we are sinners in need of the Savior Jesus Christ, and we cannot save ourselves. And as Paul would write at the end of the book of Galatians, that God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. How can we put our cruddy works in a backdrop of the cross, what he has done for us? And when we say that it is, you know, what Jesus did at Calvary and providing forgiveness, and it is also up to me in doing this act. That's what Paul was saying to the Galatian believers. There were the Judaizers that were coming in behind Paul, and they were saying, that's all fine and dandy, Paul, that you are telling those Gentile believers that faith in Jesus Christ brings salvation, but it's more to it. They have to have circumcision. They have to be cut, and they have to keep the law of Moses. And in Acts chapter 15, of course, you see that whole debate that comes up in the early church over circumcision. Well, today it may be baptism. Today it may be you got to keep the Sabbath. There's all kinds of pressure that people will say, that if you don't do these things, you're not really saved. And it is wrong. And how can we put our works in the backdrop of the cross? Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross. He said, it is done. I've done the work. I provided provision of forgiveness. For you to be forgiven and come into right relationship with the Father. And now we come in faith alone. And as we discuss in Ephesians chapter 2, then Paul says that we were saved for good works because we are his workmanship. We are his poem. We are his poem. That he should do those works in as that he ordained in the very beginning that he wants to use you and have your life be an expression of his beauty and grace as he just works in you and through you. Do you understand that? And when we understand really grace, that grace means that I don't continue in sin. Paul says, God forbid, in Romans chapter 6, but grace means that I'm free to live for him. And the law is summed up in one word, love. And when I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the greatest commandment, then you're going to want to live for the Lord and be his poem and his masterpiece, and you're going to delight in just walking with him to experience that abundant life that he has for you and for me. And he wants to do, as we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 3, exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. It is a great joy to live for the Lord. And walking in grace and living in grace means that I'm free not to sin, but I'm free to live for him. Do we understand the difference? It's not that I have to, it's I get to. I get to. I get to love him and walk with him. And there is no amount of work that we can do to earn salvation. And if you're here saying, I'm trying to do this to earn your approval, Lord, to earn, you know, my keep. Because there's something in us innately that says, I know I grew up kind of this way, that there's no free lunch, son. And people have a hard time with that. So rest in the assurance of his grace and that Jesus bought you with his precious blood, redeemed you. He was the propitiation, the satisfaction. He, he died for you. And as we come trusting in him and confessing that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So the psalmist is saying, all the wealth in the world can't buy us eternal life. And in verse 10, 
as we continue, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. The inner thought is that their houses will last forever, the dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor does not remain, he is like the beast that perish. And so man perishes and leaves everything behind as uh, we discussed in Second Peter chapter 3 recently, we just got done with Peter's epistles, and in that Peter reminds us to keep an eternal perspective because everything here is going to burn. Do you know that? It's, it's going to burn. It's going to go away. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not good stewards of what God has given to us, but keep that eternal perspective, and I think that's one of the fallacies. It is a fallacy of the prosperity movement, the health wealth movement, the, the, the prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel, is that the focus is on the temporal, the name it and claim it stuff. And our focus is to be on the eternal and keep that eternal, you know, perspective. And we're not to boast in what we have in this life. And whether God has blessed you with much, because every good gift comes from above, you praise God and be a good steward of it. If he's blessed you with little then praise God and be a good steward of it. And if you don't have two dimes to rub together tonight, I want you to know that if you have Jesus in your heart, you're the richest person in the world because you have an eternal inheritance that is a spiritual blessing that belongs to you and to me. And we're to lay up our treasures in heaven is what the scripture says. And we're to focus on eternity. Keep priority the kingdom of God is what we're to do. And Jesus said, don't store up your treasures here on earth because it's going to rust and be destroyed. And again, Peter says it's all going to, to burn up. And, and we know that it's going to go away. We can't take it with us. But send your riches ahead. That is, store up your treasures in heaven. Invest in the kingdom of God. You know, invest in the kingdom of God because the returns are out of this world. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and they're for eternity. So be a good steward and thankful, however God has blessed you. You know, Jesus told the disciples there in Luke's gospel to beware of covetousness. And, and that kind of intrigues me because covetousness, and do not covet, is one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's one of the big ten. And Jesus specifically said, beware of covetousness. But in my years of being a pastor, I can't remember, but maybe, maybe once or twice, of somebody coming in my office and being brokenhearted over being covetous. Being coveted over, you know, what somebody else has, I wish I had it. Or the sin of covetousness. And it's interesting because in our society, we're told that you're to have what they have. You're not going to be happy unless you have this thing. You've got to keep up with the Joneses. And it's a real tricky deal for you and for me as Christians. Keep your eyes on eternity. And after he says, beware of covetousness, then he tells of that parable of uh, the rich man who, who said, you know what, I'm going to build bigger barns and store up all this stuff, and then I'm going to take my ease and eat, drink, and be merry. And it was the Lord that said to him that you fool this night, that your soul's going to be required of you. And you see, Jesus gives the real key at the end of that parable. And it wasn't a tragedy that he had to build bigger barns. The tragedy was, as Jesus said, he was not rich towards God. That's where the tragedy was. I want to encourage all of us, be rich towards God. In your service to him, as you walk with him and you're giving to him.
that you be rich towards God because he desires to take that as we will stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, every single one of us. We will stand at the Bema reward seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And the Corinthians, when they read that, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about, that the, the Isthmus Games in Corinth, the Olympic Games in, in Athens that was near Corinth, only 50 miles away, that the winners of those events would stand at what? The Bema reward seat and receive rewards for what they have done. And Paul says, all of us are going to stand there at the Bema reward seat of Christ, and we're going to be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. We're not going to be judged for our sin, Jesus already took the judgment for you and for me. He's not talking about salvation, but with that said, there's a whole lot said, not only in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about rewards to be given, and all of our works are going to be tried by fire, whether it's gold, silver, or precious metal, or wood, hay, and stubble. And all the things that are unlike God are going to instantly burn up when we go home to be with him. And as we go home to be with Jesus, to be absent from the body, Paul says in that chapter of 2 Corinthians, is to be present with the Lord. And I imagine that when we see him, we always hear the jokes about Peter being at pearly gates and all of this. Forget that. Or the Hollywood's version of going to heaven. That to be absent from the body when you and I take our last breath, or I hope the rapture happens, that we're going to see our Lord. And in Revelation chapter 1, it talks that description of our Lord with those eyes of fire, and he's going to look at you and me, and all the things that are unlike him, wood, hay, and stubble, I think is instantly going to burn up, and all the things that are of him that we did, the things that you did where God has placed you, opportunities given to you. As you went into your prayer closet and you prayed, Jesus said, great is going to be your reward. As you just desire to serve in very simple ways and practical ways where God has placed you, being good stewards of what God has given to you, that you and I are going to be rewarded for that for all eternity. And I imagine he's going to look at you and me and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. For you've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many. And then he's going to usher you into the throne room and present you, as Jude says, faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you and me. That's our future. So why would you not focus on the eternal that, what our future is, and trade that in for the stuff of the world? Our hope is not in the world and the things of the world. Again, be good stewards. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy what we do in life. We can't enjoy this life, but you keep an eternal perspective, and that's what the psalmist is writing here in this psalm. The redemption of their souls is costly. It costs Jesus his life to go to the cross for you and for me, that they should continue to live eternally, not see the pit. You and I are not going to see the pit because of what Jesus did for us. And he sees wise men die like the fools and, and senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. The inner thought is that their houses will last, as I read to you. Their lands, you know, in verse 11, 
11, uh, after their own names. And, and nevertheless, man, though honor, does not remain. He's like the beast that perish. In verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings, Shalah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Praise God for that. We need to remember that wealth will not determine, as we continue reading, our destiny. Our power, our popularity, our intelligence is God that has redeemed us and saved us, and he shall receive us. In verse 16, do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when a glory in the house uh, of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For man will praise you when you do well for yourself. In verse 19, he shall go uh, to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. And a man who is honored yet does not understand is like the beast that perish. And so not, uh, you know, just because somebody has prestige in the world, you know, doesn't mean that they're going to see the Lord. You know, you should not envy someone just because they have riches. What we should do is hurt for them if they don't have Christ doesn't matter poor or rich if they don't have Christ then we should have a heart that hurts for them and to know that we don't have to envy those who you know we look at them and that's our society especially our young people we see that person that's rich and famous and seems to have it all oftentimes though those people that don't have Christ will live bizarre lifestyles and and get caught up in all kinds of weirdness and bondage and sin because they don't have the Lord. They're not satisfied. If you want true satisfaction and fulfillment in life, then live for Christ and live for Him. And He will bring that to your heart. But we have eternal wealth, and, and we're to honor God and fear Him and have a heart for those who don't have Christ, whether poor or rich. But we see here the psalmist reminding us that our redemption comes from him as he saves us. And in Psalm 50, real quickly, and, and we'll be done, that a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph is one of David's worship leaders. We know that. But also keep in mind, again, that Second Chronicles chapter 29, that he is a seer. He, he would prophesy. Keep that in mind in some of the psalms that we'll go over that he writes. But as we read the psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, uh, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. And out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our guard... Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. And he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So we see here that Asaph speaking that God's going to come, and we know that he will come in this description, the mighty one, God the Lord, uh, that will shine forth, that will come forth, clearly speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he's going to come and judge the nations and, and, um, and 
when he comes, as uh, verse 6 declares, God himself is judge, and he's the righteous judge. And I like what here in verse 5, that he gathers my saints to me, as the Lord says. And we do know that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, that he will gather his elect from the four winds when he comes back. Speaking of his people, when he comes back, he'll gather them again, and, and we will rule and reign with the Lord when he establishes his kingdom. And then in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God your God, and I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and a cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. In verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness, and I will eat of the flesh of bulls, or drink of the blood of goats. Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, in these verses here, the psalmist is saying, call upon the Lord. And it, there's a time where they're just kind of going through the sacrifices, going through their routine and stuff, their religiousness. As uh, we see the psalmist writes, that I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices, for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. When you do go to Israel today, it's interesting that you see that God is preparing a nation, but you also see the religiousness of the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, and 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 and. Um, that can happen not only as you see it with them, but as Christians that can happen as well. We go through just the routine. The routine of prayer, the routine of worship, the study of God's word. It reminds me of Jesus when he wrote that letter to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2. He says, I know your works. I, I know your patience. I, I know that you stand on truth and uh, and he commends them for that. The church of Ephesus was one that was a busy church, man. They had, you know, I picture them as they had Bible studies going on. They had, you know, all kinds of, of activity that was taking place at the church. And, you know, the copy machine, which is all kinds of, you know, bulletins going and all this other stuff. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. And you see, I pray that for us here at Calvary Chapel, for you and your family, that it wouldn't just be routine. That every single time that we have chance to gather, that you and your family, you individual, that you have chance to have family devotions, that we see it as a privilege. And Lord, I get to, to hear from you, and I don't want it to be routine. Because, you see, we can leave our first love. He didn't say you lost it. He said you just left it. And you need to remember from which you were fallen. Remember what it was like when we first came to the Lord. Oh, you know, just how free. I know I did. And, you know, and it, it's true what, what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive. We fell alive for the very first time. We knew what it meant to be born again. And, and what that was like and how we love Bible study and to worship him. But over time, what can happen is it becomes a routine. Don't leave your first love. Remember from what you have fallen. Repent and return is what the scripture says in Revelation chapter 2. Go back and do those things. 
If you're serving the Lord and it's just a routine, you're not doing it out of joy, go back and remember how much of a joy it was. Go back and remember how much of a joy it was for you when you became a Christian and you're forgiven and you're free and got rid of all the guilt and the junk of the world. Remember that. So remember, repent and return. And I got a fourth one I like to add. Not that I like to add to the scriptures, but remain there, the fourth R. And remember that every day that we have in the Lord is so precious. And David knew about that. I think about how David, he wrote in Psalm 40, I'll remind you of that. And then in Psalm 40, he understood that. David was a worshiper. And David would uh, write in Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. But then he says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. It's your heart towards the Lord every day that, Lord, I love you, and I get to walk with you and talk with you and be open to your leading. It's not just routine. And that's going to make a big difference in your Christian life. And if you're here tonight and things have been just kind of routine and you're feeling dry and struggling, maybe perhaps that the Lord very gently and compassionately is saying, have you distanced yourself from me and you're leaving your first love? He says, come back and return. And you give yourself to him because he has saved us and forgiven us. And the Lord's coming back and we get to come back with him. We have a wonderful future. And Lord, you write your law in your word on the tablets of my heart. It's not just here in pages, but it's in my heart. And Lord, to walk with you closely and to delight in you every day of my life. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And, and Lord, these psalms that are so rich and encouraging and such a blessing. And I thank you for, Lord, just our attentiveness to be able to take it in and just look at our hope that is in you alone. And, Lord, the wonderful future that we have and how you have redeemed us. You've saved us. And, Lord, we don't have to envy after anything or anyone of the world. But, Lord, just to, to keep that eternal perspective that Jesus Christ went to the cross because of his love for us and gave his life for us. And now we have forgiveness and eternal life as we come and just in faith trusting in you, being forgiven, having the assurance of eternal life and rejoicing in that every single day. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone that's here in this building listening to this message or perhaps you're on live stream, that maybe you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe you tried to be religious. You thought maybe that you'd be okay listening to a Bible study. That's good, but that doesn't save you. Maybe you're here and you're listening thinking, God can never forgive me for what I've done. All manner of sin is forgiven, Jesus said. As you come to him, you come and you confess that you are a sinner and you ask for forgiveness. And he will forgive you as you call out to him. And sincerely in your heart come in faith believing that he died for you every one of your sins. 
and he was put into a grave and he rose again. There's no other hope. No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave. There's no other sacrifice for sin, as the author of Hebrew writes. He's the author of eternal life, Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he loves you so much. That's why he went to the cross, to save you, to rescue you, so you don't have to go down to the pit, even as the psalmist 3,000 years ago recognized that. Will you give your life to Jesus if that means anything to anyone here tonight? And you pray sincerely in your heart as you come to him. That you pray, Jesus, I come to you right now, a sinner, <clears throat> in need of you, the Savior of the world. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And I pray, Jesus, that you would be my personal Lord and Savior because I believe you died on the cross for me and you were put into a grave and you rose again after three days in your life, knocking on the door of my heart and I open my heart to you for you to sit upon the throne of my life, upon the throne of my heart. Thank you for saving me and forgiving me. Thank you for filling me with your love and fill me with your spirit right now, Lord. And thank you for saving me. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. And I just want to ask if there's somebody here tonight that you prayed that prayer, if you're out in a coffee shop, if you're listening on live stream, I want you to call me this week, tell me the decision that you made. But if you're here tonight and you prayed that prayer, will you put your hand up? Just put it up. You don't have to be afraid. Anybody at all. We give this invitation all the time. And it's not that you're saved by raising your hand. If you're out in a coffee shop, you can put your hand up. But you're just saying, I made a decision for Jesus tonight. Anybody in this place, at this service, at this time? Anybody at all? Okay. We're not going to prolong it. But then, Father, I also want to pray for those. And this time, I just ask that we be respectful, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. That if you're here and you feel like that, Lord, I know I belong to you. But things have been routine for me. And Lord, I feel like I've kind of left my first love, or at least distanced myself. And I want to be refreshed and renewed in your love right now tonight. I want to draw close to remember from which I've fallen and turn to you and remain there to every day delight in you Lord to just live in your love and grace to walk with you enjoy you and experience that abundant life I've gotten away from that and I thank you for your word tonight and touching my heart Lord Lord draw me to yourself that your law may be written on the tablets of my heart. And if that's your prayer tonight, will you just put your hand up so I can pray for you? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you guys. I see you, so many of you. God bless you. And others of you that were praying that prayer. The Father, in the honesty of their hearts as they come to you, that you would bless them reaffirm just your love for them and Lord may they go out of this place rejoicing all of us of your incredible great love and mercy for us Lord thank you for tonight we thank you that 
you go before us. Help us to be a light to others, to have a heart for the lost, to continue in your word, and Lord, to be looking for the coming of the Son of Man. Because we know that he is going to come to Mount Zion. We're going to come with him. Lord, you're going to come for your church first. But Lord, we also know that we have the promise that we will see you and you will present us faultless before the Father with exceeding joy. So bless everyone here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. God is good, isn't he? He is good. He's so wonderful. Please stand. If you need prayer for anything at all, I'm going to hang out. If anybody did make a decision for the Lord and I didn't see or you're out in a coffee shop, just let me know. Or if you need prayer for anything, I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit and pray with you and minister to you in that way. Remember Sunday, uh, three morning services, 8, 9.30, and 11 o'clock. Hope we can see you on Sunday morning. God bless you as you go your way. Have a great evening in the Lord. Go home safely and a great rest of the week. Travis?